it's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. That's a spicy. Race is a construct. Hmm. And you have to understand that it's not that black people are pathological when it comes to quote-unquote eating right or doing this right, but the problem is a white supremacist framing of what is healthy. And that's the deeper problem. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Tom Philpot, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Today's secret ingredient is whiteness. Now, what's whiteness got to do with food? Well, one of our very first shows made the link between race and sugar, and we've spoken about the hidden history of black chefs uh, in American cuisine, but there may be no more self-avowedly white cuisine than veganism. If if you go to stuff white people like, uh, right there between snowboarding and marijuana is veganism. Now, someone who's been exploring the links between veganism, food, culture, race, and sexuality is our guest today, Dr. Breeze Harper. Breeze is a diversity strategist and analyst with Critical Diversity Solutions, and she's the founder of the Sister Vegan Project. Her forthcoming book, available apparently sometime toward the end of next year, uh, is Recipes for Racial Tension Headaches, a critical race feminist's journey through post-racial USA's ethical foodscape. She's spoken about the vegan practice of Black Lives Matter, and if anyone can help us understand the links between race, food culture, and intersectional anti-racism, it'd be Breeze. Breeze, welcome to the show. It's like a topic that I'm so passionate about, so I'm so glad that you guys asked me to join. And you've written so extensively on it. We, we will have lots of links on our website to the various uh, sites that you've been uh, urging us to, to consult. Uh, but I, I wonder if you could just jump right in with the Cliff Notes version, um, because you've written extensively on the idea of whiteness rather than race. And maybe we, we can start at that level. What's the difference between whiteness and race? What, what exactly is whiteness? Well, I like to start off with explaining to people that America was built on a caste system, a white supremacist racial caste system, which centers whiteness as the norm. And within that paradigm, then constructed were the quote unquote different races, whites, Asians, African-American, and the changing of terminology throughout you know, decades, um, we see sometimes we refer to as Negroes, sometimes colored. But my focus has really been on the, 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 the normalcy of, of whiteness and really questioning that. So when I speak of whiteness, I do know that whiteness, it changes, it's not static. Um, so uh, there are particular tenets that create a particular type of civilized whiteness that you see change throughout history. And the contemporary versions of whiteness um, that I have studied and seem to be um, are not just phenotypes that are fair skin, fair hair, fair eyes, but also particular ideologies that one practices to um, perform a particular type of appropriate whiteness. Um, so there is upper class, middle to upper class sensibilities. Um, their whiteness means that you are a, a physically and mentally able-bodied person. It means you adhere to heteronormative um, practices around gender and sex. So uh, it also means in terms of religion that you're practicing Christianity. So it's these all of these particular types of ideologies and beliefs that are bound up into appropriate forms of whiteness. Um, and part of that is um, my my I'm very interested in all these different types of whiteness. And when I first started my work, there's a lot of focus on the direct, the overt white supremacists, such as neo-Nazis, the KKK. And I'm more interested in, well, what does subconscious or unconscious or covert whiteness look like? People who don't normally think of themselves as racist, but you can't really leave and be in a vacuum if you've been raised or spent most of your time in the United States in this white supremacist racial caste system. So how is that gonna influence how you look at ethics? What is right? And I focus more on food and ethical consumption. So if you've been racialized in this caste system, and I'm really focused on whiteness, white people, um, what will your ethical consumption praxis look like if you're not aware of how being in that system, that caste system, 
affects your consciousness. Can I ask the Donald Trump question here, which is, um, isn't the idea of whiteness itself a little bit racist? It is. Um, It's actually, many people have described it as a pathology. Um, And any type of racial categorization, it it has racist consequences. So whiteness itself, to refer to somebody as white, um, or whiteness itself, it, if you're asked, if I understand your question, that whiteness itself, it produces racialized consequences, racialized outcomes. Um, it reaffirms um, the racist beliefs that this country was built on. Um, so whiteness is basically othering people who don't fit into that, that, that accepted, I guess, club of who can and cannot be white. So for me, I feel like um, people confuse the difference between race and ethnicity. So when I talk about um, white people or whiteness, I'm talking about how people have been constructed and put into this box called white, which is not the same as if you're someone who is, you know, Irish, someone who is Scottish, someone who looks that way. But when you enter the system because you look that way and you have these other tenants that are close to whiteness, you've been eventually accepted into that club. So there's a distinct difference between race and ethnicity. So I, I tend to think when I, I talk about whiteness or white, um, that the concept itself, yes, it is racist if you understand what it means within that racial caste system versus when someone is talking more about ethnicity and the cultures behind that, like I'm Irish, I'm Greek, I'm Polish. People who not necessarily started off as white, if you understand history, but eventually were accepted into that whiteness club, that racial caste system and and, and and at the at the at the um, height at the hierarchy that they're at the top of that hierarchy, so I, I hope I answered your question. But yeah, the concept is actually quite racist. So over the past twenty or so years, has been this sort of surge in alternative food movements. I don't want to just say one food movement, but there's been a, a resurgence. I mean, I think there's been alternative food movements over for centuries and centuries, but we've been in this particular moment for about twenty years of an uprising and new ways of thinking about food including veganism, has had a, um, a sort of surge in popularity. And I wonder if you might start off by talking us through the role that whiteness has played in those movements. Okay. So I like to remind people that whiteness has played a role in every movement in this right. country because, once again, it's, it's part of the moral fragment. It's not just whiteness, but it's the white supremacist racial caste system that has created things such as whiteness, the other, and those who should be colonized, those who shouldn't be. Um, so when I'm specifically looking at veganism, um, it's you know it's not in a vacuum. So uh, I started off looking at this about 12 years ago, when I noticed uh, I was living in Boston and I personally had never met a non-white vegan. I mean, I knew they existed, but I, I was perplexed by this. That this is interesting. Whenever I meet anyone who is vegan that they are white identified 95% of the time. Um, And then the reasons why they became vegan are very different from the reasons that I became vegan. So um, for instance, back then, this was like about, I think 10 or 12 years ago when I was interested and I had to transition into veganism, I noticed that um, the primary reason for for white identified people was that um, animal rights first and also health reasons. But they really were focused on animal rights and the suffering that they saw animals go through. Um, when I started researching non-white, specifically black women who were um, either transitioning to veganism or had been vegan for a really long time, the central theme there was that many of them were concerned about the, um, the racialized consequences um, on their health and nutrition in the black community. So... Um, due to hundreds of years of either direct institutional structural racism, we see there there are health and nutritional disparities in the black community. And um, black women were talking about how we have fibroid tumors that are two to five times more than the white um, women. And what does that mean? You know, what could this mean? And um, I eventually found this person, her book, is called Sacred Woman by Queen Afua that literally like most black women I talked to, that was the book that got them into veganism versus anything else. And what this book did was it started off framing what is it like to be a black woman in the United States for the last 500 years and really focusing on how 
we had been colonized, how our wounds had been colonized, how there's so much pain and suffering, and that's manifesting as psychic and physical um, pain, such as fibroids and um, breast health issues. And for a lot of people who are more trained in um, European science, that sounds esoteric. But if you're a person who has had that embodied experience of living through systemic racism and really fighting against the sexism and racism, you begin to feel that toll on your body. So for someone to propose that, you know, let's decolonize our diet. Let's really think about when we were colonized, that we were not able to take our own spiritual systems without, with us without being reprimanded, that we lost a lot and that we had to actually subscribe to a very white colonized way of eating and being that that really destroyed um, our health on many levels. So I, I realized that the black woman that I talked to eventually um, put together the sister vegan anthology about that the theme was that um, being subjected to racism and colonialism, uh, those legacies that created a consciousness where they wanted to engage in a particular type of ethical consumption that was decolonizing and very aware of, um, of racism and white supremacy in this country where white people collectively were really only focused on the animal rights aspect and health, but health like losing weight. But it really didn't have anything to do with being subjected to racism, which makes sense because collectively white people um, are racially privileged. They don't have to think about these things. So those are the two distinct differences as I, I've, I've seen the last 12 years. And my work kind of started off there. And ever since then, I just keep on going, interrogating further and further. Breeze, I've heard a couple lectures and, and you just mentioned also white identifying. I mm -hmm. wonder if you can talk about what it looks like to be a white person, not white identifying. Okay, um, so this is complex because th these terms are very complex. So I always tell the, my audience that um, it's not an easy binary. So I try to explain it as succinctly as possible. But after I explain it, sometimes it may not be very um, clear. Depending on what era you're in and what region of the world, you can and cannot be read a certain way. So there are people that come to the United States that I've met that when they enter this racial caste system, they are they are allowed into the whiteness club because they just look a certain way. Um, they have particular belief systems that fit into that whiteness club. Yet the same people that um, are allowed into that club don't consider themselves white. So I had a friend at Dartmouth College where I attended, um, Norwegian. He's from Norway. Very poor, has said his mother worked in a grocery store. And when he came to Dartmouth, because he was blonde and blue-eyed, um, it was expected that the white kids born and raised in America, they wanted to accept him and they wanted him to be part of the whiteness club, this dynastic elite whiteness. And he did not understand. So for him, though he is red and treated as white, in America, he did not identify that way. He identified it as a poor working class Norwegian kid. But as he spent time in America, he realized, okay, even though I identify that way, and those are my cultural roots for the past 18 or 19 years, I'm still being treated as white and I'm, 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 I'm getting the privileges of whiteness. So yeah, I don't identify as white. I identify as Norwegian because I grew up in Norway as a certain lower economic class. But coming to America, I've been inducted into the racial caste system where because of the way I look, I'm on the top of, the, of that quote-unquote food chain, and I'm benefiting from whiteness. So I can be read as whiteness, treated as white, though I do not identify as white. So it's, very, it's a kind of a sticky subject. And then a second part is I've been told, and this gets, where it gets kind of tricky for people in America who spent most of their lives here, I am very light-skinned for a quote-unquote black person. I, um, when I don't have a tan, I'm lighter than a brown bag, and that's just a different history behind that colorism. If I go to certain parts of the world, I actually will not be read as black because of my the way I talk, because of my more light skin um, tone, um, because I speak English as a first language. I've been told by people not from here but from other parts of the world said, you know what, Breeze, you'd actually be considered white. The way our you know, caste system, race, whatever works in our country, you'd actually be treated as white and you'd be considered right, though you do not identify as white. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I yeah, so it gets really complicated. It's very slippery. And that's why I think it's just difficult for a lot of people to talk about it in simplistic terms because it's not simple. Because you can be read differently depending what century you know it was and, and where you're going and where you're at and where you're located. I've been told by black people because of the way I sound, I sound white. Like black people who don't um, 
necessarily speak the same way that I do, but have a, like more um, what would be considered quote unquote black English, that, that way of speaking. So what does that mean to sound white? Yeah. And you're the, the example that you used of this Norwegian um, man is a really great example of something that Ta-Nehisi Coates um, said in a interview with Robin Kelly about when white people give up whiteness as an identity, they don't have an identity. And so what is what what whiteness is is not a identity. And um, I wonder what is your what is the way that you reimagine identity outside of whiteness as an identity? What are some ways to get beyond that? Well, that's actually a really difficult question for me. And um, and I, I tell my audience this all the time because I was born and raised in America. My consciousness has been so deeply affected by the black white binary that it's actually it's a struggle for me to, to, to think beyond that, to think beyond identities and meanings, some type of future outside of this white black binary. Um, I, I have no good answer right now. I just know that, um, you know, when people say, and I have to disagree, they say white people don't have a culture or white, whiteness isn't a real identity, um, that I think that there is a identity there that comes from years of, you know, collective racial privilege, having access to more resources, this or that, and that is going to create a particular type of identity and particular types of cultural practices. But, you know, depending who you speak to, there'll be people who just think that, no, white people just don't have a culture. They steal from everything. They don't have an identity. But I actually believe that they, that collectively white people do have a culture and identity that's kind of been built on their um, political, their social and economic locations as people who collectively have had the most power um, and access to certain resources and whatnot. So I actually think this in itself creates a particular type of culture and identity, albeit it's not what I consider harmonious or healthy, more pathological. And I, I know that's a, um, a taboo term to use, but I actually think like to be part of that whiteness club and not really interrogate how it negatively affects others who are not part of it, that is a pathology. Uh, but I do believe there is a culture around that particular um, white identity, that white culture that isn't, it's not harmonious and it's not sustainable, but there is a culture and identity there. To look beyond that, I, I have been still struggling with that as well. And even when there's a question, is there identity beyond blackness? Will we, can we get beyond, you know, once we dismantle this system of not just um, U.S. American racism, but it's globalized racism, um, what then what will identity look like? You know, what, what will, what is beyond blackness? What is beyond whiteness? And there are particular um, disciplines that kind of are focusing on that, such as Afrofuturism. And I did have a link um, to Af and um, Silco's work that they really focus on this concept of Afrofuturism, um, which is um, what Black people can do, what their future looks like without, how, without being contingent upon being constructed around whiteness and not being white, I mean. So there is like this discipline called Afrofuturism, um, mostly science fiction, speculative fiction uh, that mostly black authors write about. So that's, that's, that's kind of a, a, you know, a window into the possibility of what it looks like. Um, and then there's other authors like the last name Ignative. I think it's how the Irish became white. Uh -huh. um, I think that's actually really helpful because if you think about it, if you can flip it, there was a time before when like Irish people were not white. So what did that identity look like? There was a time before when Polish people had an identity that was not connected to whiteness. So I think it's also helpful to go back in history to the people who were not considered um, white at the time, but white now. What did their identities and cultures look like when they were not um, part of that whiteness club? Um, the, the, well, Breeze, I, I, I wonder, oh, sorry. Thank, thank you for turning me on. So I, I, I switched <laughs> off my mic there for a second. Um, uh, I, I, I wonder whether we can think about how food culture might help answer that question. Um, sure. You've so so may, maybe the the way to start it is this. You you've mentioned that in th that there are lots of different paths to veganism, uh, and that in some ways uh, th there's there's a specifically 
I mean, there's a sort of weird racially agnostic kind of veganism that values creatures with brown eyes, even if it doesn't value people with brown eyes. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder then if if there are ways that you can imagine certain kinds of vegan food culture that do value all lives equally. Um, and I, I wonder if, if you can perhaps, uh, if, if, if in answering that, you can maybe guide us through what that would look like. And, and I know that we also have lined up a, an extra specific question about, uh, you know, a, a, an approach, a, 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 what an analysis of Nutella would look like. Um, but I'm going to uh -huh. let, let someone else answer that, uh, but, or ask that question. But, but yeah, it, can you give, you a, give us a sense of what this, um, you know, how it is that one might imagine uh, food culture and an approach to lives, because I mean, clearly there's something important about veganism that values life. Um, yeah. And I, I wonder if, uh, again, to, 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 to steal from the Donald Trump school of uh, racial enlightenment, um, <laughs> th that we can think of uh, a, a, a food culture in which all lives matter. Yeah. So um, I think one of the best ways to describe at least my framing of this is that I'm a, I'm a materialist when it comes to food. So I try to understand what certain food objects mean in a society during that time and um, how those meanings are embedded with, you know, racial meanings, socioeconomic class meanings, etc. Um, so one of the examples I give is their mainstream vegans, uh, they like to go to their guidebooks of what is considered vegan and cruelty-free. So the root of veganism is to enact nonviolence upon non-human animals and um, actually it's it's for to not to enact nonviolence upon animals so um, I take that as all animals including human beings because human beings are animals uh, but the mainstream vegan um, movement so what I do is I look at certain materials not just food but like recipe books or vegan guides and um, I noticed that there seems to be a lack of a racial justice framing in how, quote unquote, cruelty-free vegan food is sourced. Um, so I can tell you what uh, vegan practice looks like that doesn't really take into account all forms of life and ways of alleviating suffering for not just non-human animals, but human beings as well. So a big thing in the vegan community is to mark a product that is cruelty-free, meaning no non-human animals are harmed. So I'll look at cocoa, cocoa products. That's huge. People are so excited who are vegan and they finally find chocolate that doesn't have uh, cow dairy in it. Um, and a lot of these products are actually not telling you the source of the ingredients in them, such as cocoa and what type of environment these human beings are in that are sourcing it. So most of the world's cocoa comes from exploited labor. There's the Ivory Coast where um, there have been thousands of children who have been abducted to work on these cocoa plantations that much of the quote unquote cruelty free cocoa bars come from. And that's like for me, that is a clear example of if you are part of the um, commodity chain as the privileged white middle-class vegan consumer you're never going to actually know the the slavery and exploitation that is still taking place in the world that involves humans to bring even your quote-unquote cruelty-free vegan products to your table so we have an example of a collectivity of vegans who are buying these commodities because non-human animals have not been directly exploited killed harmed but there's a lack of awareness that oh by the way um, those who are most likely to be exploited to get the food to the table, to your table, are not going to be white. They're going to be poor, non-white people, usually in the global south. So how do you create a vegan awareness, a vegan praxis that is intersectional and understands that even though a non-human animal wasn't harmed, you have to make sure that if you understand the commodity chain, which is, of course, built within, you know, on capitalism, the capitalism you, the logic is that there has to always be exploitation. Um, how can you, how can you, you know, create a world where you can get the the food that you need and want without human beings being exploited? So that's kind of one way that I look at it. And um, a lot of white vegans um, that when I talk to about, and there are several colleagues of mine of color who do the similar work. When we try to explain to them, 
even though that you know that earth balance there is no no not human animal directly exploited you know there's palm oil in there and there's indigenous communities being displaced um it's really screwing up their ecosystems a, a significant number don't actually care. Their response is that it doesn't matter as long as non-human animals are killed. And that's mm -hmm. a very privileged position to be in, mm -hmm. mostly as, and this is collectively, mostly as white, middle-class, um, privileged people who have this easy access to consume what they want without really understanding the racialized, class-gendered consequences. Um, and then there's the framing of veganism where there's mostly non-white people involved in the, in the United States where because we've already had this collective embodied experience of being subjected to racism, a lot of us classism, that we already know when we go into veganism we want to make sure the way we do it also there, there are other um, intersectional justice frameworks happening, making sure the way we promote veganism or how we get our vegan food that we are clear and understand that hey, even though it's kale and a cow wasn't hurt, that this kill may have been picked by a migrant worker who is under the worst conditions. So let's try to make sure that we start putting together policies, um, creating laws, doing grassroots organizing to make sure that um, that kill that we get to us um, comes in the least amount of um, suffering that is actually truly nonviolent, which is the tenet of ahimsa-based of ahimsa -based veganism. So those are the two distinct differences that I do see. There's an up and rising new intersectional social justice approach to veganism that's becoming more accepted and kind of more trendy and mainstream in the last year and a half. And it's largely kind of led, and not surprisingly, by non-white vegans who are um, born and raised in and um, I guess most of the United States. So those are the two distinct, I guess, things I've seen, the differences I've seen. And um, with me, I'm, I'm trying to go out and do the lectures and the webinars and talking to white identified vegans who, you know, they have good intentions, but when you're ignorant about certain privileges, it's going to get replicated through your, um, even your ethical practices. So I'm going out there trying to explain about what I talked about with kale, or if your strawberries are harvested, or how your cocoa is harvested, I'm, I'm trying to go out there and explain to them that even though it's quote-unquote marked ethical by a company saying it's cruelty-free, you have to understand capitalism, you have to understand how it's marketed to you because they don't expect that you'll ever spend time in those spaces where those ingredients are actually sourced, which is usually not um, humane and not fair. So that's what I've been doing for the last few years is really trying to get people to understand that because you're not going to know it if no one's ever told you. So, Breeze, your efforts to do that um, have inspired a bit of a backlash um, uh, from certain quarters of the vegan movement. In particular, just reading kind of about you online, I see that there's this, um, they call it the abolitionist style of veganism that has been particularly uncomfortable with your critiques. Can you talk us through that conflict? Oh, yeah. Well, um, there is a man, a professor named um, Gary Francian, and uh, he started off this concept of abolitionist veganism, which basically means that under no circumstances should non-human animals be used for humans at all, under no circumstances. So that's basically what it means. Um, and I've actually never tried to contact this person, but I believe back in the fall, uh, a woman named Ruby Hamid responded, I, I believe, to this person, and they cited some of my work. Um, and then ever since then, uh, this person has been um, very focused on um, chiseling away at everything I have to say. And um, he is, I guess, a white identified man. Um, it's very interesting. <laughs> uh, his response is basically that um, I don't do it right. And that I play the race card or that I'm a white hating bigot. And I actually don't respond to him because in all honesty, he's one of many people who have been doing this type of response since I can remember, since I was a child, when I've tried to interrogate the consequences of the white supremacist racial caste system on our society. Um, and it's just his opinion. He, he believes that um, because I don't, outrightly say that everybody should be vegan and that should be your moral baseline. Um, for him, veganism is a moral baseline. When I give my talks, I say that because of the way the resources of the world are structured, most people don't actually have a choice or access to what they need in terms of food. So I cannot and I will not say that everybody should be vegan right now because I know 
that that's just not possible. And I'm not going to say that should be someone's moral baseline when most of the world's population is struggling with so much just to survive. Um, so that's kind of where he has decided for, I guess, for the last year to continuously dedicate a lot of time to um, focusing on that of what I said, along with, I believe, he had focused on a talk I'd given. I've given many talks. I've written a lot. But um, he found it very important to focus on me saying that my first pregnancy, I've been pregnant four times, was not vegan because I had um, doubts. I was I had internalized some of the rhetoric that I'm going to kill my baby if I'm not vegan, and I didn't have the support I needed, so I ate eggs a few times a month. So for him, that was really important I, I'm, to, to really focus on <laughs> and show to the world how Reese Harper um, is, a, I think, a bigoted specious, and it was just a very interesting, like, I didn't quite get it, but I didn't really engage too much with it. Um, and I found it interesting that my, uh, my other three pregnancies have been vegan, and that there's no focus on is there a possibility that Breeze Harper has offered anything positive to the world? It's a possibility that her framing of veganism has allowed a of many non-white identified people who have not gone vegan, how they you know looked at the mainstream. Is there a possibility that you can acknowledge that her framing of veganism, though not your abolitionist vegan rhetoric, has encouraged a lot of people to transition into veganism? So I found that interesting, but I also found that. Um, not surprising because I have received a lot of this animosity from white identified people, no matter, you know, what their positions are in life. Um, in general, that I'm a white hating bigot because of the work that I do. Um, and I'm, I'm not a real vegan because I'm not going out there and, and screaming and yelling at everyone, you should be vegan, because that's just not my method. Um, I had similar responses back in 2004 when I proposed the Sister Vegan Project, which is an anthology, the first of its kind, that looks at the voices of Black-identified women who are vegans and really understanding why they transitioned. And when I did that call for papers, it ended up on a website called Vegan Porn, which has nothing to do with porn, but all these other things that are vegan. And the person who posted it, they were the moderator, and it ended up being mostly, mostly white vegans upset that I would use the word sista that I would use black English, that I would interrogate how race, class, and gender affect ethical consumption, veganism. Um, just pages and pages of rants of how ignorant it sounds. Someone had said, you know, if you can't speak English well, but like you've been born to a crack addicted mother, you don't need a job. It was just, it was pages and pages of great empirical evidence that shows what white people look like who don't think they're racist engaging in racism, who um, are very, very, you know, well-intentioned, who would die for that, that bunny rabbit, to die for that cute sail that is being beaten, but they have no interest in interrogating their own whiteness and white privilege. And actually, um, that's just one of many instances where I'm always getting that backlash. But um, like, once again, instead of engaging with people who I consider trolls or who are misinformed, I use um, this backlash always as empirical evidence and data to create literature. So I ended up writing a master's thesis when I was at Harvard, discursively analyzing about, I think, 80 pages of these rants, and then showing this is what covert whiteness looks like amongst white-identified vegans who really think they're not racist. Because at the time, I was doing focusing on cyberspace and educational technologies, and people doing race work in cyber cyberspace um, they were only really focusing on the overt racists, you know, the the Nazis and the KKK who get together online. But no one was really looking at, well, what does it look like for a bunch of white identified people who are vegan, who think they're good, who think are, that they are not racist, who are still enacting very racist and white supremacist ideologies. I just want to observe, first of all, the bizarre uh, contradiction of uh, the vegan abolitionist movement not wanting to talk about race. Uh, but then w want to ask you about the how gender matters here um that i mean the, the the idea of sisterhood is something that's very important in your work um and i, I wonder if you could help us understand the links between uh race veganism and gender how does gender matter how, how does that make how, how does that trouble uh, current understandings of um of veganism and of food choices 
Okay. Well, I know gender is a very broad topic. And um, when I first started my work, because I'm a cisgender woman, which means I was born biologically labeled as female, and then I live my life as what is expected, the heteronormative, you know, performances of girlhood and womanhood. Um, I started off looking at gender from that framework when I was looking at black women's lives. And um, that's my ignorance. And that was a huge um, mistake for me because I already excluded people who are transgender women. Um, and then I became less ignorant and I um, became more educated around cissexism and um, what it means to create an ethical consumption praxis that is truly gender inclusive and also understand that gender is um, influenced by racial formation or how race is lived. Um, so I can give you some examples on how kind of this gets muddy and difficult. Um, I do know, just like more anecdotal evidence, um, in general, uh, mostly cisgender women who are in the animal rights movement, mostly white, who are doing this work, um, they do talk about extensively the sexism and misogyny that they experience from male leaders. But this is nothing new because we have this this, uh, you know, this phenomenon in just about any sector that you go to. It's not just veganism. Um, and I found this disappointing, but not surprising. Um, there are a lot of instances where people talk about, uh, women talk about being subjected to just uh, very, very misogynistic um, treatment, um, women who want to talk about being sexually harassed and sexually assaulted. Um, and if you, and I, I really thought about digging deeper into this and um, there's, when veganism, um, I guess a lot of the scholarship came out a few decades ago, um, scholars like Carol J. Adams would propose that uh, people who eat meat are more prone to being sexual predators and sexual harassers. And I thought, well, what does it mean when we have women who are talking about men who have been vegan for a long time, who are still sexual predators and sexual harassers? So that was kind of one of the things I looked at in terms of gender assumptions made um, and it's linked to uh, particular ways of eating. Um, and another aspect of my work, I also look at um, uh, the Afrocentric vegan movement. It's, it's very, very broad, but the mainstream rhetoric is very focused on the assumption that a healthy black community has people who are heteronormative and they are cisgender women and men. And if you are not that way, then the problem comes from you were eating the white man's diet, which makes you gender confused, that you're confused about your sexuality. So this is a very taboo topic to talk about with mostly white people, because it's kind of a reason for them to make the claim that see, the Afrocentric community is not doing it right and look at how they're, you know, cissexist and heterosexist. Um, and for a lot of white people to not really still focus on how whiteness um, created these kind of um, responses within the Afrocentric community. So let me explain um, that a lot of the, the, the struggles that Afrocentric vegan community um, has is, is kind of combating what they think were the damages of colonialism and whiteness. And unfortunately, um, in terms of gender, well, in terms of race, a lot, most of the community understands that we are all subjected to racism. Uh, but where it becomes complicated is that most of us, even if we're black identified, we're gonna be deeply affected by all these ideologies and mainstream society. So you may be aware of what it means to be black and you've been subjected to racism, but you may also internalize um, heterosexist notions of how sexuality should be, heteronormative notions of how gender should be. And that, unfortunately, can kind of bleed into what you think should be the decolonial food practices of your nation. So um, though I, I learned so much from the Afrocentric um, vegan community in terms of recipes and, and, and how to cure my fibroid tumors, I took issue with their perspectives on gender and sexuality and making the claim that um, a woman's place basically is with only a black cisgender man and that she keeps the home, that she makes him the right meals, she makes the family the right meals. It was, it was very, to me, a very, very confusing and very frustrating where um, 
yes, I understand that traditionally black women had to take care of white people first, that they didn't have the luxury to take care of their children first, to nurse their children first. And we're talking about antebellum slavery, that they had to go out and make meals for white people first. So the resistance to that is, how about the black woman to rebuild the black community? This is Afrocentric veganism, that she creates holistic vegan meals. She makes her family priority first. She takes care of her man first. She takes care of her household first. And if she can, she doesn't go out and work, she stays home. So that is actually resistance to what black women were expected to do. Um, and it gets a little, I guess, um, it gets very complex. So for Afrocentric vegans, um, black women who are cisgender, who are heterosexual, who are partnered with a black man doing the work that they need to do as providers in the home, that is resistance. But from my critical race feminist perspective, when I look at the gender aspect and the sexual orientation aspect of that rhetoric, it's it's very exclusive of folk like me because I'm not I'm queer I'm bisexual, uh, and I'm partnered with a white person. Um, that that is very exclusive for someone like me, and that there needs to be more emphasis on critically analyzing how colonialism has still affected those engaged in Afrocentric veganism. You have a post that that is titled, Nettle Teas Won't Dismantle Racism, but Can Help with Racial Tension Headaches. And I was I was thinking about that in terms of the way that the medical industry has addressed and not addressed and kind of gaslighted the idea of trauma. As a lot of uh, people who, who transition to veganism are doing it for health reasons. And I wonder if you can speak to that in terms of helping to ease pain that is from racial trauma? Um, so let me try to figure this out. Because I'm not an expert in, you know, psychiatry, psychotherapy, but I can talk to you in terms of, you know, I guess anecdotal evidence that shows me that there are a lot of people in my community that are doing this anti-racism work, um, non-white people who are um, doing this, this work that's very taxing on our psyche. And um, I know I myself, I live in the Bay Area, and I remember just thinking, I, I would like to find someone who is trained in particular types of trauma that are connected to, you know, just kind of struggling through, surviving through systemic racism, white supremacy, all that stuff. And I really couldn't find that when I looked for um, psychiatrists, psychotherapists. I think I, I found one man in Oakland who was trained in um, Franz Fanonian type of psychoanalysis. And Franz Fanon was an Algerian um, black man who uh, like 60, 70 years ago really saw the horrible effects of colonialism on both black and white people. Uh, but other than that, I couldn't really find it. Um, I know talking to a lot of my colleagues who are doing this work, they're very burnt out. Um, a lot of them don't have the resources they need, whether it be mental health resources or even food resources and nutritional resources to combat those the physical stresses that come out of the psychic stresses of doing anti-racism work or just being subjected to racism every day. Um, and I, I do know when I just go to my regular practitioner, and it might just be the area I live in, I live in um, the East Bay area, um, it's hard for me to really talk about um, what it's like to be in this constant stress, in this constant mode of hypervigilance and awareness on walking around as a black woman and what that does physically and psychically to my health. Um, most of my practitioners um, have not been black people who would understand that. Uh, they're mostly white. Um, and them not really understanding what I'm talking about. There's just, there's no connection. Um, I know there is literature now, a lot of scholarship um, the past 10 years that have been focusing on, on that, hey, actually, people like, you know, black people may have diabetes, and it's not necessarily related to because they eat this way. Um, a lot of it is, is connected to stress and the stress of living in a racist society, dealing with racial migration, microaggressions every day. And if I find that, that citation, I'll share it with you. But I was like, yes, finally, you know, stop just saying it's a problem because black people eat bad soul food. And if they just ate this certain way, then they would actually be healthier. Like it's so much more complex and deeper than that. So far, like just like the mainstream has to catch up, um, allopathic medicine, it, they're trying to catch up, 
Um, but at the same time, the way they're dealing with race, they don't understand it's a construct. So they'll say things like black people are more prone to this or that, but not really understanding, no, it's not because they have these phenotypes or they're black. It's if you understand the socio-historical context of everything and what led up to the, this um, collectivity of people not having what they need that makes them more prone to this particular disease, these particular outcomes. But right now, um, it seems like most of the mainstream allopathic medicine, the research, they don't quite understand race. They don't quite understand that it is a construct and that just because someone is identified as black doesn't mean that they're going to have this outcome. It's more complex than that. And there is a, a colleague of mine who just wrote a book. Um, his name is Anthony Hatch. He's out at Wesleyan. Racial Pharmacology and Food Justice in Black America. It just came out. And, you know, he, he kind of talks about how there's this been this huge amount of efforts put toward um, race and, and pharmacology without them really understanding race as a construct hmm. and that you have to understand that it's not that black people are pathological when it comes to quote unquote eating right or doing this right, but the problem is a white supremacist framing of what is healthy, a white supremacist framing of just everything dealing with health and nutrition, diabetes, all this stuff. And that's the deeper problem. So, Breeze, um, I, I noticed that you have a new book coming out this year, and it's it, it looks like it's going beyond veganism. It's a it's a journey through post-racial USA's ethical foodscape. And I wonder if you can comment on food movements that are outside of veganism, things like um, eat local, go organic, these kinds of um, movements that, that have been going on for a while and what the sort of landscape is like for them in terms of social justice, in terms of racial justice and things like that. Yeah, okay. Um, so this new book, um, it's basically a, going to be a critical narrative of my journey through this stuff over the last 12 years. And I've gone through a lot of things, but I want to take out like specifically 10 or 12 um, experiences I've had that really show the impact that this white supremacist racial caste system has had on everybody, whether they're vegan or not. Um, so one of the things I, I can talk about to answer your question is, um, I've blogged about this, is the mainstream culture around uh, permaculture. And I had written that um, I was on a list that constantly talks about, you know, permaculture classes, learn permaculture, learn permaculture. And I had um, noticed that some of these um, classes were offered in regions of the country, the USA, that I would consider historical sundown towns or towns that are still sundown towns, but it's not, you know, formally labeled as a sundown town. Um, so I began to think about this. And if you don't know what a sundown town means, it means that if you are non-white and you're in my damn white town, you need to be out by sundown or bad things will happen to you. Um, and that was back in the day where they like formally would just go and lynch you if you're not supposed to be there or beat the crap out of you. Um, so I see a lot of people posting things like this and um, not really being aware of um, the luxury or the privilege it is to be able to just show up to any permaculture class you want if you are a white person and not have to worry about is this in a sundown town. Um, so I think about the opportunities I've had to attend certain uh, topics around food, um, foodie culture, permaculture, gardening, and then I instantly realized, wow, this isn't a town that I'm not really sure I'd feel comfortable in um, as the only black person, as a town that has a particular history of just being oblivious to the um, to 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 race in America and to its own whiteness. Um, so that's kind of one instance where I'm going to talk about that in my book. Um, and then there's like just there are many places that really do try. There's events like which is um, a vegan event. Um, the Animal Rights Conference, it's a national conference. They talk about uh, not just animal rights, but many aspects of vegan and food and eating. And most of my non-white um, friends who are involved in the similar work that I am said that it's just the way they frame it, the way they um, put it together, it's still very much centered on the normalcy of whiteness and not really being more intersectional in terms of their approach to, to a heaps of based veganism and alleviating suffering and being more critical of racism and whiteness and, and um, even extreme capitalism. Um, and I think also one of the things that I focus on too is um, Joel Salatin, um, not directly him, but 
focusing on what it means to, as a black woman who is a critical race feminist, um, I asked a question on a listserv where they mentioned that he would be a judge for a soil contest. And um, having noticed that he does have a framing of food or alternative food through a lens that is quite misogynistic and uh, quite xenophobic. And um, it's, uh, to me, it's quite, it's quite racist. And I'm not saying he himself is racist, but the framing of it has racialized racist uh, consequences. And I had asked on that listserv, you know, because of this kind of history and how he's framed uh, the alternative food movement, and sustainability, can we be sure that when he judges that that he'll judge the soil and not judge the person who's created that soil? Like how could we how could we be sure of that? And I thought that was a I thought that was an <laughs> honest question, uh, based especially on the literature that some people have written that kind of critique that, you know, he has a sexist framing of this or he has a xenophobic framing of, of this. Um, and the backlash I got was was not surprising, it was disappointing, but um, I talk about this in my new book that hmm. um, a lot of white identified people were very upset that I asked that. Um, someone said that Joe Salatin should sue me for defamation. And I tried to explain, like, I'm not, I'm not saying this person is a racist or a sexist. I'm saying how this person frames food and sustainability. You can see, um, you can see it has um, racialized consequences. That you can see that these are the consequences because they come from this particular framing. But for some reason, when you try to interrogate mostly what would be considered white gurus, whether they're in the vegan movement or the local form movement, me as a black woman doing that, there's this instant backlash that I must be a race baiter, that I must be a white hater. When in fact, I'm just trying to point out that uh, these particular ignorances are going to produce negative consequences. So how can we make sure that everyone who's involved in this movement, who truly want to create food, nutrition, health that's accessible to everyone, that we're all aware of these spots that we miss because of our privileges. And I also used in that blog, that, that chapter I'm writing, my own experience as a cisgender woman. Like when people who are transgender women called me out on my cis sexism, I didn't immediately start making about me and my feelings hurt. I realized, yeah, actually I'm, I'm ignorant. What would I know about being a transgender woman in this country. Why don't I listen to the community that's actually been negatively affected the most from transphobia tell me how even though Breeze, you are not directly sexist, your framing of veganism, your framing of ethical consumption, even your framing of anti-racism is cis-sexist because you're ignorant of your own cisgender woman upbringing, your experiences, etc. That story about uh, Salatin reminds me of a phrase that I've seen you use before. Um, white fragility is sort of this idea that someone questioning the the genius or the perfection of a guru like um, Joel Salatin is very painful and has to be act, react, you know, reacted to in a defensive way. And it's a very fragile way of thinking, it seems like. Yeah. And um, it's actually not my term. It's Professor Robin D'Angelo. She, I think, wrote an article back in 2011 to really describe this phenomenon when you know, non-white people are trying to talk to white people just about the most basics about racism, that there's these defense mechanisms because the white people collectively are not socialized to think critically about race the way non-white people have to to survive. So there's these instant, like, what do you mean? Are you trying to say I'm a bad white person? Or no, that's not what's happening at all. This she's these defense mechanisms that she's coined as white fragility. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically what I... I experience when I get these these instant attacks on what I'm doing or what I'm trying to interrogate. And um, I think one of the, the challenges is that, you know, when you think you've been doing quote unquote good work your entire life and then someone comes and questions that, that of course that's not uncomfortable. You know, whether you're being questioned, you know, are you sure you're not racist? Because what you just did had racist consequences. Are you sure you're not sexist? Because, you know, even though you're, you say you're not, what you just did had sexist consequences. I think that's very painful for most people who literally think they're good people. And they don't understand, like, when someone is interrogating that, like myself, they don't understand that I'm not attacking them as a person and saying they're a bad person. What I'm trying to interrogate is and point out that none of us are perfect. Most of us have some type of privilege 
because of the way the system is arranged that has led us to creating good intentions that have negative impacts because we are ignorant around those privileges. So that's kind of what I've been trying to talk about. But, you know, I get the most resistance, not from when I talk to people who are not vegan, but I talk about why I'm vegan. I don't get such um, violent responses. Hmm. I don't get violent responses when I talk um, to uh, men about sexism, regardless of their identity. I don't get such violent responses when I talk about class. But when I bring up whiteness, whoo, hmm. something about that. With white people, damn, I mean, still, 12 <laughs> years later, I have no idea why. That's still the hot button. Um, as you were talking, uh, in the in your in a lecture that you gave that addressed this idea of white fragility, you made this point that um, you said, you know, you're going to say you're going to directly confront this and you're not going to take hecklers and this is the way it's going to be. And I love you. And you mentioned that um, love is not pandering and love is not giving you some sugar-coated idea of race. Love is speaking directly about what matters and what the problems are. And I wonder if you can address this this kind of superficial idea of love and what that means and how just re-understanding what that is can actually address these issues at the core and help us to have a better dialogue about them. Okay, well, that's an excellent question. So when I speak of love, I'm not I'm not just talking about like romantic love. I'm talking about love in its pureness as I understand it. So let me give you the background that um, I come from a Zen Buddhist spiritual, I guess, tradition of understanding um, love and um, unconditional love and love without, you know, um, limiting factors on what does and does not include um, love. So what I understand is like, I first was raised in a household where my parents told me that love um, means that it's unconditional and that I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to sugarcoat it because I don't want to promote ignorance because um, ignorance creates more suffering. And also, you know, my dad's like, and if, if I see that you're doing something that I think is just going to create you more suffering, I'm going to be upfront about it, but in a loving way. I'm not going to pander to your emotional needs so you can stay in your own ignorance, uh, but I'm going to lovingly explain to you that if you continue to do it this way, you're going to end up getting hurt. So like that's my framing of um, one form of love. So when I start using this particular, um, this particular framing of love in the work that I do, um, and I'm talking about white fragility, when I start talking about white supremacy at the systemic level, and I see that my audience may be uncomfortable and tell me that I'm hurting their feelings, making them feel bad, my response is that true unconditional love will not keep you in this state of ignorance, which even though you think you have good intentions and you're a good person, that you still clearly have negative impact on not just yourself, but the rest of the world. So my love to you is compassionately teaching you that actually this, the, the way you're enacting this is from this point of ignorance and privilege, and these are the negative consequences. Yes, Whenever someone points this out to you, naturally you're going to feel bad, but that's normal. It's normal to feel bad about something when you thought you had been a good person. And um, I, if I were to lie to you, that's not honesty. If I were to lie to you so you could feel better, that's not true love because you're not evolving as a person. You're going to remain stuck and remain in this, what you think is this, this safe, harmonious way of being because you are not being challenged, you're not being questioned. If you still are the same way you are, you were 10 years ago, even 10 weeks ago, if you're not constantly reflecting or critiquing, then you're not really evolving toward this state of unconditional love. You're still trapped in these superficial ways of being and trapped in a way that um, kind of promotes a conditional type of love and also promotes a way that is not creating a better place for yourself and for the planet. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you, okay, You're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you so much for inviting me. I've just been inside, excited for weeks, and then when I woke up, like, 
the flu and a cold. I'm like, no. <laughs> well, thanks for talking to us anyway, despite that. Thank you. All right. Take care. Take okay, care. Have, have a great day. Okay, bye. 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 Dr. Breeze Harper is the author of Scars, a black lesbian experience in rural white New England and the founder of the Sista Vegan Project. Her forthcoming book is Recipes for Racial Tension Headaches, a critical race feminist's journey through post-racial USA's ethical foodscapes. On the next episode of The Secret Ingredient, Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and I will talk with Alexa Delwich about ethical school meals and what's being done to make them a reality. You can find more information on this episode and check out our archives at thesecretingredient.org. And be sure to subscribe to The Secret Ingredient on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Our engineer is David Alvarez, and The Secret Ingredient is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas for KUT I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.